Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. If you guys would just bow your heads with me once more and we'll dive into the text that Daniel just read for us. Uh, Lord Jesus, we are a people who need help. Um, We need help in knowing our hearts. We need help in knowing what to do. Uh, But in your word, you have promised for those who feel a need that help has come in Jesus Christ. So as we examine this text today, Lord, I pray that you humble us, however and however painful you seem fit, in order that you might restore us in worship of you. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we are working through the gospel of Luke right now. And uh, today in Luke's account of the gospel, we encounter what is probably one of the more hotly contested stories in all of religious literature. And that is the account of Mary, the virgin, who conceives through divine intervention with the eternal second person of the Trinity, God, the Son, Jesus Christ. And if you were to search the internet, which is always a dangerous thing to do, for the virgin birth, you will find ample websites and stories trying to paint this account that Luke shares with us today of history as just another myth akin to other pagan worldviews and religions. One opinion piece written in 2019 attempted to show that the Christian fable, as they called it, of the Virgin Mary was nothing more than a copycat of other pagan myths. And the author went on to then list as fact to the reader a bunch of other religions where there was a token person who was conceived of a virgin. But as I looked into all of the things that she included in there, Most of them didn't include a virgin conception. Some of them included a God who actually came and had intercourse with a human. They produced a sort of demigod. And then the ones that did claim a purely virgin birth produced offspring that were not historical figures. They were pure myth and legend, and there is no historic account of any of them ever living. For instance, Attis, the pagan god of vegetation, was alleged to be born of a virgin or perhaps an almond. And the broader uh, myth around this is that he was actually born of another god named Agdistus. So it's not even assumed in their own system of religion that he was born of a virgin. In fact, one scholar said in surveying the field of ancient religion, there is no account of a virgin conception of a historically verified figure who would then go on to live, to die, and to be risen from the grave as Jesus is purported to have been. Which means what we encounter in the narrative, the true history of Jesus Christ, is not another myth. It is not another religion. It is something different altogether. Another article published in The Guardian in 2015 had this big pop-up text bubble on the page which said, most scholars agree that virgin is probably a mistranslation for the Hebrew word young woman. This would be a really good argument if the Hebrew word only meant young woman, which it does not. Additionally, 
Mary's response in the text that Daniel just read for us shines some light on this. For us, our English translators of the ESV that we have have kind of made this the PG version of what Mary actually says because what it's recorded in our passage is her saying, how is this to be for I am a virgin? But the word Luke uses is not the noun virgin, which he uses earlier in the text. The word he uses is Mary literally saying, how will this be for I have not known a man? The author is right. Every scholar who denies the virgin birth agrees that virgin must mean something other than virgin. But it would appear that Mary herself, who tradition had it, sat down and shared this story with Luke, was quite quite convinced of what happened. More than that, Luke, who we saw earlier, has set out as a historian to write an orderly account that is well-researched and who is himself a physician and understands biology is not squeamish about including these details. The Pew Research Forum did two studies, one in 2014 and one in 2017. And remarkably, contrary to what media might tell you, the majority of Americans in both of those polls believe in the virgin birth. However, the rates have declined from 73% to 66% over those three years. And while white and black evangelical Protestants score 95% or above in affirming the truth of the virgin birth, the Bible makes it clear that 100% of true Christians affirm the virgin birth. It is not a side tale or secondary doctrine to the Christian church. One critic, as I was reading, said that apart from the birth narratives in the New Testament, the Bible is completely silent on the doctrine of the virgin birth which is a really fancy way to say that outside of all of the times the Bible talks about the virgin birth, it says nothing about the virgin birth, which might not be as convincing of an argument as it sounds. The miracle that we read today is not a myth that we can either take or leave. It is central. To deny what we read today is not simply to deny Mary's experience or Luke's account of it. It is to deny the very promise of God itself that he would work to redeem through the Messiah who is Christ the Lord. You can have a historical Jesus without the virgin birth. You can have a moral Jesus without the virgin birth. You can perhaps even have a miraculous Jesus without the virgin birth, but you cannot have salvation through Jesus without the virgin birth. All that Jesus came to do could only be done if he were 100% God and 100% man. And this divine mystery is what our passage upholds today. To lose the virgin birth is to lose the promise of God. And therefore, it would be incredibly foolish and reckless if Christianity was just another sect of religion trying to influence power in the political sphere for them to take the whole weight of God's promise and to put it on something as seemingly fragile as this if it were not true. But it is true. And because of that, God has preserved for us in his word this account for our sake. And it's this account that we're going to look at today, and we are going to notice two things in this account. First, we are going to see the fulfillment of God's great promise. But secondly, in looking at Mary's response, we're going to see the comfort of God's great promise. 
And so behind the story of the virgin birth is not merely a nursery tale or a Christian apologetic or a prophetic coincidence. Behind this story is the reality of a God for whom or with whom with which nothing is impossible, which is good news for those who find themselves in impossible circumstances. And so let's read again today the whole of our text, which Daniel read for us, beginning in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So in the story of Luke, this passage picks up six months after Elizabeth, the old barren wife of the priest, miraculously conceives. And here, God is commissioning Gabriel again to go and proclaim another miracle, another announcement of good news, this time to a virgin named Mary. And we're going to look at Mary's experience and kind of the narrative she finds herself in in our second point today. But in our first point, we are going to look backwards in time at the way in which this fulfillment shows us God's promise. And it is a great promise. And as we zoom out, we are going to see our first point today, which is the fulfillment of God's great promise. Wrapped up in Gabriel's announcement is not merely something new but it's something old. It's something God had been working on for a long time since the very beginning. Since Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, since they were created and rebelled against God, as a result, they were removed from God and his loving kindness and his life-giving beauty and sin and death entered into the world. But from that moment onward, God made a plan to win back his people to defeat the sin which destroys and separates us from him, to restore to his people the holiness that we were meant to have in God's presence and to rule and reign over his people with immediate and intimate joy and peace and love. 
You see, the story of Christianity, the story of the Bible is not a story of how man found God, but it's a story of how God found sinful men and promised to save them through his son. And that is the gospel. The good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. And here, as a baby named Jesus is said to be conceived in the womb of Mary, three aspects of that long-awaited plan were being clarified for Mary, for God's people, and for us today. And the first aspect of that promise is that Jesus would come as God's distinct son. That is Jesus as God's distinct son. And this is important because look at what we saw a couple weeks ago in uh, the story of Gabriel and Zechariah in Luke 1, 14 through 16. So this is Gabriel talking about John the Baptist who would be born. He said, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So here, John the Baptist is going to be great before the Lord. Why? Because he's going to be set apart. He's going to abstain from alcohol. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's going to set his hand to turn people as the messenger of the Lord to turn their hearts back to God. John was going to be great because of the role he would fulfill as God's prophetic forerunner to the Messiah. But look at the similarities and the distinctions in Gabriel's words to Mary in verses 31 and 32. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And so here we see that like John, Jesus is going to be great. But why will he be great? Because he will be Son of of the most high. In other words, John is going to be great because of what he's going to do. Jesus is going to be great because of who he is. This Jesus, this one who is conceived of the Holy Spirit, overshadowed by the most high, is a child who is holy. That's a word that's riddled with all sorts of religiosity and it just means to be set apart. It means to be distinct. This Jesus, this son, is the son of of the Most High. That is not to say that he is simply a child of God. That's to say he is the Son of God. Most High was a title used for the Lord almost a hundred times in the Old Testament. And this proclamation of Jesus as the Son of the Most High shows that he is not only distinct as God's Son, but it shows the way in which he is distinct as God's Son. And that is here we see Jesus as the distinct God-man. Jesus is the distinct son because he's the distinct God-man. When we think of that, we think of Spider-Man. We think of two things that somehow correspond with each other and one is taken up with the other. But here Jesus is the God-man, which is unlike anything else we can see or imagine. This is the paradox and significance of the virgin birth. Read with me Luke 1, 34 through 35. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, 
the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And the virgin birth is unique in everything that's described here because it is both a human event and a divine event. It is a human event in that Mary was really going to get pregnant, that there really was a womb and it really did belong to Mary and it really was a virgin womb and it was really going to grow a baby and the baby was really going to eat or do whatever babies do with the placenta and she was going to have a natural birth and the baby was gonna grow and need air and food and diaper changes and health and all those things. This was a human event and yet this was a divine event. In this passage, God the Father, the Most High, is going to work in tandem with God the Holy Spirit to cause Mary to conceive without intercourse with the incarnate and eternal God the Son, and his name will be Jesus. This is a paradox, which is impossible for us to fully understand, and yet it is still clear enough to be believed. And the paradox is this, that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, co-equal of the same essence, or as we sing in some of our Christmas carols, light from light, who is eternally begotten and proceeding from the Father, that eternal divine Son would be born as a man. My wife and I have started process of teaching our kids Trinitarian theology, because if that's how, if the triune God saves us, then knowing the triune God is simply knowing the lover who saves us in the Bible. And so we've started using questions and answers, um, which is something the church has long done. And so we were driving um, to community group the other night and I asked my kids, I said, who is God? And One of them responded, the answer we give to that question, the answer the Bible gives to that question is there's one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then I said, and what's coming up? And they said, Christmas. And I said, what happened on Christmas? And they triumphantly said, Jesus died. And I triumphantly said, we need more of this in our lives. So we got to the point where Jesus was born. I'm like, yes, absolutely. And then I said, and did God the Son exist before Jesus was born. If you ever want your kids to be quiet, just ask that question. And my son sheepishly said, yes. And he was right. God the Son existed eternally proceeding from the Father as spirit, but his existence in the flesh had a beginning. When he was born and given the name Jesus, because it would be weird to simply call him God the Son on his driver's license back then, he was given the name Jesus, he took on flesh, and at that point, the incarnate second person of the Trinity began. Here in Luke 1, the Son who was eternally God also became fully man. Not 50-50, not 75-25, the paradox of 100% and 100%. But more than that, I asked my kids, I said, well, what happened after Jesus died? And my daughter, who loves the Apostles' Creed, said, he ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. I'm like, yes. And I said, 
And what is Jesus like now? Is Jesus still in the flesh? How would you answer that? The answer is, yes, he is. Jesus has now risen from the grave, the veil of his humanity. When you saw Jesus at Walmart back then, he looked like every one of us until after he was resurrected from the dead. And then you walk in and you see him and you say, he looks like us, but he is not like us. That man is radiant with splendor. And he is now risen to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, where he is eternally and forever in the flesh, which means we now are saved by the one who is not only God's eternal son, but the one who is forever our brother in the flesh. A high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he was made like us. And more than that, to see Jesus in his radiant glory is to get a foretaste into your future glory. That we too, at the end of all things, will rise in physical bodies like our Savior. This is the infinite mystery of the virgin birth that in being conceived by the work of the Holy Spirit and of Mary, he was fully God and fully man in the flesh. And this is profound. And yet this profound miracle was a long-awaited miracle. God had tipped his hands at various times in the Old Testament that this would be the means of salvation for his people. We see one of these instances back in the book of Isaiah. And at this time, the forces of Assyria were bearing down on God's people and they looked around like perhaps you have at different points of trial in your life and you said, has God forgotten? Is he still there? Is his promise reliable? And so God was going to answer a people who ironically didn't want a sign and he was going to give them a sign. He was going to cause a young woman to conceive and the child born would be influential in keeping the people safe. But look at the language God uses when he speaks of this in Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Matthew's account of the gospel, he explicitly ties the virgin birth to Isaiah 7. This is it being fulfilled. Luke does it in a more subtle, but equally as profound way. Because remember how Gabriel meted Mary in verse 28? And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with her. How? Not only because he's speaking to her, but literally God is going to dwell in her womb. God was with her and by nature, God had come to us. And this is the final point of fulfillment here where we see God's promise with Jesus as the distinct king. Look with me at verses 32 and 33. He will be great, will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. 
So not only was God going to act in causing Jesus to be born as a human, not only was he going to once again save, deliver, and answer his people, but God had sent and Jesus was going to forever be the king God's people were waiting for. If you've read the Old Testament, you've seen the story of God's promise. And the hope of God's promise was always wrapped up with God's king. God promised to Abraham that kings would come from him, that God made this promise to this nobody, that he was to become a somebody in service of the king. And kings would come, and from that kingdom, the nations would be blessed. They would come in and reap the benefit of this king. And then Israel, as they progressed, they got kings. And the human kings that lived, some were not great at all. Some were just completely savage. And some were good. And yet it never lived up to the hope God's people had. But the best king Israel had, King David, God entered into a covenant with him. And notice what God told King David back in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 14. When your days are fulfilled... And when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And now we see the significance where there's a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph, who is a descendant of David. Here is the long-awaited king, the eternal king, who is God's son. This promise rears its head again in the shadow of the virgin of Isaiah 7, And this is in Isaiah 9, and look at how this is spoken of once more in verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. In other words, every day in this kingdom gets better and better and better. And just when you think it can't get better, tomorrow comes and it's better. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, will do this. The child born of a virgin would establish God's forever kingdom. And in reading that description, no matter your political preference or your view of small government or big government, we want that one. That's the one in which we get everything we've ever wanted. And the beauty of it is it is God's zeal to do that. He is eager to bring that into your reality so that you might have peace. Jesus is that king. That's what he's going to call people to in his gospel as we see the teaching of the kingdom. 
That is what he's going to die to establish. That is what we are waiting for when we take the Lord's Supper after the sermon today. You see, Jesus had come as God's Messiah and he was going to be the eternal king because he was the eternal son. Jesus had come as God's Messiah and he was going to be the perfect sacrifice for men because he became the perfect man. In Genesis 1, God made Adam the first man by lumping up the dust of the ground and breathing life into him. And here in Luke 1, by the breath of the Holy Spirit, God brought into existence the new man who would make the recreation of our broken world and hearts possible. What we sing about when we sing Christmas carols is nothing less than the very hope on which all of God's children sit. The hope that God keeps his promises and humbled himself by taking on flesh and dwelling among us. You see, this story, which reaches back to our wound of sin and forward into our hope of glory, makes sense of our history. It is a reasonable faith. But more than that, this story doesn't simply make sense of what we see outside. This story makes sense of what is inside. This story makes sense of our own lives. The power of God's promise not only invades history, but it invades lives. And this is our second point this morning. This is the comfort of God's great promise. God is bringing on this fulcrum in Luke 1. All of the promises of anticipation are beginning to to come into existence. And yet, there is this individual young woman named Mary. And her story and participation in this is relevant to us and our own stories. Knowing that God keeps his promise in Jesus not only changes things, it changes lives. To believe this message is to have your life changed by this message. And this is where we consider Mary's experience. And we're going to see two things in this. Uh, This is the comfort of God's great promise. And we are going to see as comforts the joy of God's favor. And then we're going to see the conviction of God's faithfulness. So let's examine first the joy of God's favor. This is verses 28 through 30. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So Mary is greeted by the angel Gabriel with this wonderful greeting. Greetings, O favored one. And just like Zechariah earlier in chapter one, Mary's response to this greeting is fear. But actually even more so, the word that Luke uses to describe Mary's fear in this verse is, uh, this is the only occurrence of it in the New Testament. And it stresses great fear, great distress, great uncertainty in the midst of this. This week in our Bible reading group on Wednesday, we're in Hebrews 1. And those of you who are reading with us, you read that Jesus came to, quote, deliver all those through faith who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus came to free people who live in fear of death. 
If there's one thing COVID has done, it has brought the idea and the reality of death to our forefront. And many of us perhaps know people who are paralyzed and consumed with the fear of death. For some of us, perhaps this fear is more acute. We don't wake up in the morning with this conscious fear. And yet, if you examine most of your decisions in life, how many of them are based off of a fear of potentially not getting what you want? A fear of missing out, a fear of losing, a fear of not achieving, a fear of not maintaining. But whether and to what degree you experience that weight of fear in this life is helpful, but it's not ultimate. But one day, each and every one of us will stand not before God's messenger, but before God himself, and you will be fearful, for he is greater than us. And in the face of what is perfect, we see most clearly our blatant imperfections. And yet here, Mary, in her common state, just like you or I, is fearful before the Lord, as each and every one of us will be. But Mary is comforted with the greeting Oh, favored one. Literally, one on whom is much favor. Her fear is then spoken to a second time, and Gabriel comes right back with this idea of favor. He says, don't fear. You have found favor with God. The only thing which can save us from the fear of death is the favor of God. So what is this favor? Well, part of it is Mary's unique role that she would be the mother of Jesus. But part of this favor was that anywhere the message of Jesus and his coming into this world is proclaimed, there is the Lord's favor. The message which crushes the fear of those who stand before God is the message of God's favor through Jesus Christ. The words Luke uses in verse 28, O favored one, in verse 30, God has had favor, share the same Greek root, charis, which is translated in multiple places across the New Testament as grace. You could easily read, do not fear, for God has had grace on you. What Mary received, what Gabriel proclaimed was God's immense favor, the favor of God's immense grace. And what did Mary do to deserve such favor? Nothing. And this stands in contrast to what we saw about Elizabeth and Zechariah, right? We know Zechariah was a righteous man, exceedingly so. Luke doesn't include that Mary was a scoundrel by any means, but he doesn't give us that background. Mary was probably ordinary in her following of Yahweh. Zechariah was a priest serving the Lord, and Mary has no familial line of fame. Zechariah was serving in Jerusalem, the political and religious center of the known world. And Mary is here in a small potatoes town of Nazareth. Yet of all the people who could have been chosen to bear Jesus, Mary was chosen. Why? Because that's how grace works. You do nothing to deserve it. 
It is simply declared to you in the message of Jesus Christ and you respond with hearts of faith and when that happens, all fear is put to death. Paul uses many of the same words Luke does in Ephesians 1 where he speaks of this in verses four, the last part of verse four in verse six. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious favor, or what is translated here as grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. How has God shown to us his glorious grace, his glorious favor in the beloved? That's in Jesus Christ. The Roman Catholic Church takes this specific passage in Luke chapter one and twists this favor out of context and makes Mary into this semi-divine saint who we can pray to and who we can worship. And they make all sorts of myths and fables surrounding Mary that this was unique to her and not to anyone else. But the beauty of Mary's favor here is that, that all who come to her son get the same favor. We get the same grace. We get the same fear-killing joy. Mary's life from this point on was a life of favor, knowing that God had chosen her and loved her. And anyone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ means that you have walked not into mental ascent or walked into a new worldview. You have walked into the favor of God towards sinners. To believe in grace is to have the favor of God through Jesus Christ. And yet this joyful favor that Mary had did not make her life into a cakewalk. In fact, to actually receive grace from God, to know that God has been favorable to you in Jesus Christ is to submit the whole of your life to him in a faith which helps us in our fear. It's here we see the second comfort of God's promise, and this is the conviction of God's faithfulness. Read with me once more, verses 34 through 38. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her own age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am a servant of the Lord Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So we see Mary speak twice in this text. And both of her responses show a commitment to believe and act in light of God's faithfulness, both to his promise and to her person. And one thing you'll notice if you were with us last week is it seemed that Mary got off a little bit easy, didn't she? Zachariah asks a question. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. how's this going to happen? And Gabriel's like, good question. Don't talk again for nine months and I'll let you know. (laughs) Mary here asks a question. And what does Gabriel do? He's like, well, let me give you an example. (laughs) Elizabeth, the one who's barren, has now had a child. He gives her a sign of what this is. And there is a distinction if you look at these questions that are being asked. Zacharias was specifically tied to him not believing. We know that because Gabriel told that to him. 
But when Mary asks the question, she asks from a different posture. We don't know precisely what that is, but I think it's because Zachariah was concerned about the if of the prophecy and Mary was concerned about the how of the prophecy. You see, Zachariah was married. He had a wife. He could have heard that and went home and known that I have the means to try and conceive. God has given me everything I need to do that. But Zechariah questioned if that were actually possible. They've tried before. What's new? And that's why he, the, when he says, how can I be certain of this? The word he uses is one that communicates knowledge. He doubts that God could do it. But Mary, her doubt was how would this happen? Because I'm a virgin. Because I haven't known a man. Here she's told she's pregnant and yet she has no means of getting pregnant. What a great example for many of us how unwilling Mary was to sin against God. How quick are so many of us to baptize our sin in service to the Lord and helping his promise come into our lives. We say, God wants this and if I could just cut the corner here, I'll get what God wants and life will be better. Perhaps you think that if you speak harshly or act abusively in the home, that you're just helping people learn how to follow Jesus and your sin is okay. God is pleased with that. That is a lie. How many of us enter into dating relationships with non-believers because doesn't God want them to be saved? Isn't this a great context for me to love them as Jesus has loved them? And yet Paul warns of the danger of that. How many of us say, I mean, wouldn't you rather have me looking at pornography than actually sleeping with somebody? Aren't I doing a service both to other people and to myself? If you've ever been engaged, you know the increasing weight of sexual temptation, which seems to wear on you as the engagement goes on. Mary could have easily said, well, if God wants me to get pregnant, I'll swing by Joseph's house on the way after work and we'll fulfill some prophecy. It'll be great. But here, Mary knows that God never calls us into sin in order to reap his promise. She wants to know. She is asking God. She's like, Lord, I am not going to sin. So how will this be? A commitment to God's faithfulness is a conviction in your life that you know you do not need to sin to reap the reward of God's promise that God provides a way. And here the solution is that God will do it. Mary would conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this might seem wonderful to us and make a great Christmas time story. But for Mary, this would certainly be a burden that would be overwhelming, isolating, and fearful. Under Old Testament law, anyone, male or female, who is caught having sex outside of marriage was liable to punishment. More than that, betrothal was considered as significant to Israel as marriage. And so if Mary were to be impregnated by someone as a betrothed woman who was not Joseph, it would be considered adultery. And the punishment for someone, male or female, caught in adultery was death. On top of that, the Jewish system at this time was so influenced by Roman politics that it refused to acknowledge the testimony of women as witnesses, which is what happened in the courts of Rome. Whereas God's law in the Old Testament gave women a voice as a witness just as much as the man did, 
In this culture where God's law was being perverted, a woman's testimony was considered worthless. Not only would it look like Mary had acted inappropriately, but even if she had been raped by a man and made pregnant, unless another man witnessed that offense, her testimony of her own assault would mean nothing. And on top of that, her claim to being pregnant is the Lord did this to me. We know from Matthew's account that not only is this a hard tale to believe for those on the outside, but it's hard for Joseph to believe on the inside. Being a good and kind man, he sought the fishiness of this and was making a way to quietly divorce her if Gabriel had not come and shared this same thing with Joseph. Whether Mary knew it or not at this moment, what stood before her was nine months of being whispered about, doubted, scandalized, spoken ill of, disbelieved, and even isolated from her fiance. But look at her response in verse 38. Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary was being called to do something which was an immense privilege, to nurse Jesus the Christ. And yet it was a weighty burden in the midst of a broken world. And her response, and how touchy are we when Jesus comes after our idols? (laughs) Mary's response to this life-altering announcement of good news So I love how other translations put, she says, I am a handmaid of the Lord's. The Greek word is the female version of the word slave. I belong to the Lord. Let it be to me exactly as you have spoken. You see, where Zachariah of all people was a priest in a temple with a wife, he should have been the first to exercise this sort of submissive faith. But it's the small town virgin who manifests such beautiful submission to the plan and purpose of God because she is convicted that this God is a faithful God. How so? Look at what Gabriel says right before her profession in verse 37. He says, for nothing will be impossible with God. With God, nothing is impossible. What does it look like to live in light of a God like this? In the midst of everything which was happening in Mary's world at that time, Mary thought if God was going to bring about his eternal son in human form, God could do it. If God was going to bring about his forever king and the government of peace of which there would be no end, God would not abandon me. If God was going to answer his promise to save God will continue to give me favor. If God answered Elizabeth in her distress, he will also care for me in mine. If God chooses to act like this, if a God like this chooses to act, nothing is impossible for him, so I'm going to trust him. If God can be trusted to bring salvation to all people through the incarnation, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the faith they put in him, can we not trust Jesus with our own lives? This following of Jesus is a joyful submission to a God who is faithful. 
At the end of Jesus' life in the Garden of Gethsemane, there was the humble prayer of the Son to the Father, not my will, but yours. And here at the beginning of Jesus' life is the humble profession of his mother, let it be to me according to your word. What will the story of God's faithfulness look like in your life? What would it look like for you to respond as Mary did? For some of you, it looks like coming to Mary's son for the very first time. It looks like running to the one who can actually do something in your life, who can take away your sin, who can restore you to God, where all of the empty promises of sin that you've exhausted time and time again finally find their substance in Jesus Christ that it's not the longing for something better that's the problem. It's that without the eyes of God's favor, we will never find something better. But here he is, and he took on flesh for you. But for those who have come to Jesus, what does trusting in Jesus look like in your life? What does trusting and submitting yourself to the word of God look like in your fight against sin, in your obedience, when it seems it's difficult to go forward. This text, Daniel and I were talking about this at the end of the week, it's full of all of the paradoxes you could ever invent in scripture. Here we have the God who is three in one, we have the baby who is fully God and fully man, and we have the virgin who conceives. And yet God did all of it without problem. You can look at that and affirm that theologically, but to believe that is to be changed. If God can do this, what can't he do? If God can sustain through this, if we've seen his promise answered in Jesus Christ, then won't he also answer you in your fight against sin? Won't he give you strength to endure when it seems hard? Won't he come alongside you in your doubt? Won't he encourage you in your holiness? Won't he give you words to speak in your evangelism? Won't he labor alongside you in your discipleship? Won't he fuel your generosity? And won't he love you in his favor? In light of a God who does impossible things, let's do it. Let's trust him and give him everything for he has given us favor in the Son. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your mercy to us in Jesus. How easily it is for our eyes of faith to be separate from our faith in life. Anyone who comes to Jesus affirms that God has done impossible things. But because Jesus has come, should we not to have confidence that we can do things that seem hard because God always keeps his promise, because he has given us his son, because he has promised to deliver and love those who come to him in faith. And so Lord, for this church, may we be servants of the Lord. Wherever you take us, Whatever you desire for us, may we actively obey, even if it seems isolating and lonely. Lord, we thank you for the church that reminds others that that is never true, even when it seems so. 
We pray all of this in your name. Amen.